All right, well, open your Bibles to Romans, and we've gotten to the very end of Romans. This is our last time together for this series uh, in uh, this wonderful letter of Romans. I trust it's been a blessing to you as it's been to me. And uh, let me read um, Romans 16, verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. This is our last time in Romans, as I've said. And uh, since Romans is really a, a careful, detailed explanation of the gospel, you might expect the last word, the last part in uh, the letter of Romans, to be the final word on the gospel as well, the, the a conclusion on uh, the gospel. And uh, if that's what you're expecting, Paul does not disappoint, uh, because this is really a fitting capstone final word on uh, the gospel message itself that Paul uh, ends with. And what is the last word on the gospel? It is the glory of God. It's the glory of of uh, God. Um, it's been said, the teaching of scriptures tried to be captured and encapsulated by this, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, and for the glory of God alone. And that's a great abbreviation of uh, the gospel, and, and it's put in terms of sometimes called the five solas, sometimes that's said in Latin, comes from uh, the Reformation. And the glory of God alone, to God be the glory alone, for salvation is, is always put last, because it is final. It's actually the reason for all the rest, and it's the reason why they're alone, and why our salvation isn't by grace in part, or through faith in part, uh, or in Christ in part, or according to scriptures in part. Uh, the reason for that is because all of it is to glorify God alone, not in part. He doesn't share the glory of salvation with man, with the people being saved. And that's why he does it alone. That's why he uses faith, which uniquely glorifies him uh, alone and uses that uh, alone uh, for our um, uh, salvation. God will not share his glory with another and especially in the matter of uh, salvation. So the gospel drives towards the glory of God, and that's uh, how Romans does too, and that's how Paul ends in this epistle, is speaking of God's glory and ascribing glory to God uh, alone. God exists for his own glory, to appreciate, to magnify, to manifest his own glory. And what that means, his glory is the shining forth of his character. That's God's glory. Um, and uh, the gospel itself magnifies that more than any other. And so the, the glory of God is the final uh, point of the gospel. So wherever you start with God, speaking about God, and certainly if you start with the gospel, 
But wherever you start with God, you're on an unstoppable train headed for the glory of God as the final destination, and nothing can stand in its way. And the good news of that is that this pathway to glory, the one that Paul traces here uh, at the end as he ascribes glory to God, includes strengthening you, causing you to stand. God is glorified, if you're a believer, by strengthening you by causing you to stand at the end. And as Paul ascribes glory to God here at the end of uh, the letter, he says, may you be glorified by, by doing that. That's why you deserve the glory is because you cause Christians to stand because you strengthen uh, Christians. And so it's a great way to end uh, this uh, presentation of, of uh, the gospel that Paul preached. Um, an outline for this morning, I'm just going to keep it really simple. Um, a final greetings is verse 21 to 24, and then a final doxology, ascribing glory to God, verse 25 through uh, 27. So the final greetings in verse 21 to 24, um, and I've already read uh, this, so I won't read it uh, again. Uh, you might feel inclined to skip these greetings that come at the end of Paul's uh, letter to Romans. Um, and say, well, we want to we want to talk about theology, you know, and doctrine. So uh, all these names that come in Romans chapter 16 is uh, full of names. We might think we we should uh, skip them. They're important. The, the names are important. The letters that Paul wrote are warm and personal. Paul himself was warm and personal. That's why he wrote letters that way. That's what a Christian is to be: is to be warm and personal. That's what the church is. It's a place, uh, that's what Christian fellowship is. It is warm and personal. It can be no other way. And so uh, it's important uh, that, that uh, Paul's letter, even at the end, is full of people. His mind is full of people. He loves these people. They're on his heart. They're on his mind. They're on his lips as he writes. And uh, he sends uh, greetings uh, to them. Um, at the beginning of chapter 16, or actually most of uh, this chapter, is where Paul sends greetings and names the people who are already in Rome. Paul had never been to that church before, and so it's, it might be amazing how many people he actually knows personally who found their way to uh, Rome. And so he lists them and he sends uh, greetings to them. They're already in uh, Rome. There's, I think there's over 20 names uh, that he mentions. And then this is another section of greeting, but it's where, it's where he sends greetings from those who are with him. And Paul's writing this letter from Corinth to uh, Rome. Uh, he mentions eight people alongside of himself. Four of them are teammates in Paul's ministry, and he never ministered alone. He ministered with others, uh, people. One of them is Tertius, and we'll talk about Tertius a little bit, um, when we get to him. And then three of them are, uh, members of the church in Corinth. So he first mentions, um, four teammates in, uh, ministry and four, four fellow workers. First one is Timothy, who kind of needs no introduction. He's Paul's son in the faith and uh, uh, right-hand man, so to speak, uh, and was with Paul uh, at this time. So Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen, which I think means they're, they're Jewish converts. Paul talked in this letter about uh, the burden that he had for the salvation of his kinsmen, uh, the people of Israel. And so these are, these, uh, three men, Lucius, Jason, and Sosa, Peter, are men who were, uh, from churches that Paul planted on his missionary, uh, journeys. 
um, who were Jewish uh, converts and were accompanying Paul as he delivered the collection from the churches to Jerusalem. And Corinth was his last stop. So he sends a letter to Rome and then he's going to, he's planning to return to uh, Jerusalem. And these are uh, those who are there with the gift to help him bring the money, which was a task in itself, and to ensure the integrity of that uh, offering, which was to go to uh, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Jason was from Thessalonica, probably, and actually, as it turns out, if you stick around, if you come next week, you might hear something more about Jason. I'll just leave it at that uh, for for what I'm hoping to preach on um, next, but actually, I think we'll encounter his name uh, next week's and learn more about him. Uh, I think a man from Thessalonica. Uh, Sosipater was from Berea, close by, and Lucius was from uh, another place in Paul's um, in Paul's uh, journeys and where he had planted uh, churches uh, as well. And then, uh, so those were Paul's fellow workers who were with him at this time. And then uh, he mentions four uh, believers who are from Corinth. So Gaius, Host to me and the whole church in verse uh, 23 uh, was a leader in the church in Corinth. The church met in his house and he's being a host to Paul. So I guess Paul's writing this letter from his home. Um, and uh, so uh, he sent Paul sends his greetings. Uh, Erastus was uh, a believer who had who was a city official, a city treasurer. And we don't know much about we don't know anything about him except for this. There's an inscription that was found in Corinth that has his name on it. Maybe it's the same man. It's from the same time. If so, then he was a, a believer. And then uh, Cortus also uh, is mentioned. His name means number four. So he was. He's, it's a name that was given to slaves or to freedmen uh, of uh, the time. And he's just mentioned as Cortus the brother. Cortus uh, the brother. Cortus, uh, a Corinthian uh, believer who sends his greeting, uh, brings us to Tertius, and I skipped him, and his name is number three. So uh, probably another name given to a slave or to um, uh, a freedman, and that's in verse uh, 22. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. And uh, you don't be confused about the author, the human author of this letter. Paul um, is the author, the human author of the letter as the Holy Spirit moved him. But typically letter writing was a two-person job. And uh, actually, I don't think we're even so far removed from this in time, from how things used to be done, um, where uh, the person writing a letter would speak it and then the secretary would write, or I'm thinking of typing, uh, of how it used to be done. Um, and, and so that's how the letter writing was done at this time as Paul would um, speak the letter and then he'd have somebody there serving him who would know how to write, have all the utensils, and he would write uh, the letter. Uh, and that's what Tertius uh, did. It was a labor for him to write out uh, the letter of Romans and then it was ready to um, send. And so um, at this point, Tertius writes his own greeting. Paul isn't dictating this part because he says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in uh, in the Lord. And Paul, I'm sure, allowed him to uh, include that from uh, himself. So if you think of um, the authors of scripture that the Holy Spirit used and the men that you think of, like Paul or Peter, 
uh, or others, uh, include Tertius, because at least this verse came from him, and it's just a very simple uh, greeting. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. He didn't make it a big embellishment or anything like that. He just made it very simple. I greet you in the Lord. And so he's a sincere Christian and uh, uh, writing this uh, letter and serving uh, in this way. At which point, after Tertius signed off with his own greeting, it's possible that Paul picked up the pen himself and wrote the final verses, the final doxology, the final uh, ascribing of glory to God, which we're going to get at for the most of uh, this uh, message. That was typical of what Paul did in his letters. For example, um, 2 Thessalonians at the end of uh, uh, the letter there. Uh, Paul writes, uh, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way that I write. So he took the pen and wrote it out. Galatians has something similar and even indicates that he wrote it in bigger letters, maybe, and people have connected that with a possible eye problem or something that Paul uh, had, but it was, it, it was his handwriting was uh, known in that way, and that could distinguish his letters from forgeries uh, as well. But it may be that Paul took the pen and wrote out, the final, the final word on the gospel, the final word on uh, Romans with his own pen. If so, then that makes these verses even more special uh, than they already are. Before we get to that, uh, those final three verses, verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And um, he's already said that in verse uh, 20, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Uh, you can never hear too much about grace. You can never hear too much about grace. Um, it doesn't need to be balanced out. You know, well, we've heard enough about grace. We need to balance it out with something else. Uh, it's uh, grace upon grace. That's what you find in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you find here in Paul's letter uh, as well. And so uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's how you're going to grow. It's by understanding more of his grace. And so Paul um, uh, speaks of it uh, again uh, there. Well, that's the final greeting. <laughs> As Paul uh, wraps it up and sends it, especially from these men who are right with him uh, as he's writing this letter to the Romans and they send their Christian greetings along with this letter uh, uh, of uh, Paul. The final greeting and then the final doxology, doxology and, and uh, the Greek word for glory is doxa. So it's a it's a statement of glory, uh, the final doxology that ascribes uh, glory to God. And let me, let me read these uh, wonderful verses uh, one more time in verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And by the scripture of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Uh, amen. Uh, if you boil that down to its essence, and it, it uh, kind of involves a, a lot of uh, statements that we're going to try to wade through, but if you boil it down to its essence, what Paul's saying there is, to God be the glory. It's, it's, it's one statement of, uh, to God be the glory, that's the skeleton of it. It's a little bit like a prayer ascribing glory uh, to God, and then that statement is adorned with a whole bunch of elaborations. Uh, which explain why God deserves uh, for glory to be ascribed to him. And so because of that, because this is, doesn't just say to God be the glory, but it's a little more elaborate uh, than that, 
The glory that Paul's describing to God, it, it travels on train tracks, so to speak, to get uh, to God uh, a securitous route before it gets to God and glorifies him, according to what Paul is uh, uh, saying. And uh, a way that involves you, it touches you, if you're a believer, and it perfectly fits this letter uh, as as well. Paul says, now to him, and that's where the glory should go. That's where the glory uh, will go. And uh, the way he describes God is why it ought to go to him, why he deserves glory. And here's the reason why. Now to him who is able, to him who's able. And uh, the word here speaks of ability, speaks of power. The, to the, the glory goes to God who is powerful, who is uh, able. God's power is maybe the first thing that you think of when you think of God or the first thing that a child learns uh, about God. You know, the child song, my God is so big. My God is so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Um, and that's, that's a, it's a good way for a child, actually for an adult to, uh, uh, think, uh, of God as according to his power or, uh, a, a way maybe adults might be more used to Daniel chapter uh, four and, uh, verse 35, which says that God does according to his will and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And uh, so it speaks again of God's power and that includes Satan himself who's more powerful than we could even uh, imagine and uh, cannot stand against God or call him to task or say to him, what uh, have you done? And so God is able, he's powerful to do what? To establish you, to establish you. And the word here means, um, it can mean to cause you to stand, to cause you to be inwardly firm, to strengthen you. This is why God deserves glory is because he's powerful to cause you to stand, to cause you to be firm, to cause you to be strong. This is what Paul's saying here at the end of uh, this letter. And uh, that's good news for us when we say about ourselves, well, I wish I were stronger. I wish I had more strength. I wish I had more resolve for the Lord. And I see that my power is small. Well, this is good news that God deserves glory for being powerful to establish you to cause you to stand. In fact, the existence of this kind of God is good news because it's his glory to strengthen you. It's his glory to strengthen you. You can be thankful that that kind of God exists and that he's not like uh, anything else uh, besides that, but, but he's like exactly like what he says he is. Now to him who is able to establish you. And the you here is plural. And, uh, it, it does refer, it, it includes you as an individual if you're a believer to cause you to stand, but it's plural as a group, to cause you to stand as a group. He's saying, saying this to the church in Rome. In other words, that, that uh, God is powerful to cause you to stand, to, to stand up to Satan's assaults and to stand up as uh, a church, to stand up as a church. Paul's concern for the believers in Rome would, would be that they would continue in the faith and stand even when tested by trials, but especially that they would stand together, that they'd stand together. And not just as a group of friends or even as a group of committed Christians whose uh, unity might come from who knows what uh, shared trait or shared interest or shared opinion uh, that they might have, but to stand together as a church, 
to stand together as a church. And he's saying, God is able to do that. It's his glory to be able to do that, to strengthen you so that you're able to stand. You're able to stand together and you're able to stand together as a church. Paul was very concerned. In fact, that's why he wrote this letter uh, uh, to the Romans is to cause them to stand as a church. It's by standing together as a church that they'd be able to help others, other churches that Paul was planning to plant even west of them and especially wanted to enlist um, their help. And he was very concerned to their unity to threats to their unity as a church. And so at the end, and he mentioned some of them, like um, differences of opinions over um, foods and holidays that uh, threatened to become a, a big issue in the church and uh, to uh, cause them to fall. So he says at the end of this, it's God's glory that he's powerful to establish you, to cause you, plural, you a church. That's who he writes to, to stand and to stand uh, together as a church. Well, how does God strengthen you? How does God cause you to stand? Do you know? Do you know how God causes you uh, to stand? How he strengthens you? How he fills your heart with inward uh, strength? You should know. Does he do it mystically? You know, like waiting for some spiritual experience to happen and that's how he does it and you have to kind of try to vaguely kind of harness that in some way. Uh, is there a technique you need to master a piece of uh, spiritual technology if you do step one, step two, step three. That's how God strengthens you and fills you uh, with strength. Well, no, it's actually simpler than both of those. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the way God strengthens you, the way he fills your heart with Strength is by proclaiming the good news of Christ into your ears. And you hear that and you're strengthened by it. Your heart is strengthened. That's how he does it. That's his glory to do it uh, in that way. Proverbs uh, 25, 25 says, Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. Just kind of a, a truism about uh, good news in general. Proverbs uh, 15 and uh, verse 30, bright eyes gladden the heart. Good news puts fat on the bone. And so uh, that's true of good news. How much more this news, the news of uh, Christ uh, himself, fills your heart with strength, puts fat on the bone, gladdens the heart, is like cold water to uh, a, a thirsty soul. Uh, so Paul says to him who is able to strengthen you, According to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. He doesn't even say here, uh, he's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of what you must do to be a better Christian. That, that's what strengthens you is the proclamation of what you must do to be a better Christian. Now I'm not saying anything against that. That's extremely useful, extremely helpful, uh, to learn the things that you should do. Maybe like reading your Bible every day or, or things you must do um, to uh, become a better uh, Christian. Learning about the life of obedience and the commandments of the Lord and, and setting yourself like Ezra to do those things. Um, but uh, those things don't fill your heart with strength. Those things tell you the way that you're to go. If you're ignorant of those things, it's going to cost you. Uh, but what fills your heart with strength is not the proclamation of what you must do to be a better Christian. Or what Christians do, what actually fills your heart with strength is the proclamation of Jesus Christ. 
that Christ is risen from the dead, that your sins are forgiven, that Christ says to you, like we learned uh, this morning in, in uh, Sunday school, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. And he's able to do that because of what he's accomplished. Now that fills you with strength. That makes you want to learn how you can become a better Christian. And it's good that we do uh, learn that. But we're filled with strength through the good news of what Christ uh, has done for us and dying on the cross and rising uh, from, from the dead uh, for us. And so it's the preaching the her- meaning the heralding, like a herald makes an announcement, uh, like Isaiah speaks about, your God reigns. The victory has been won uh, for you, and because of that, you will win the victory too, or nothing can separate you from uh, the love of Christ. And so what the herald says about Christ fills the people with strength and resolve and uh, with unity of purpose and causes uh, them to uh, stand. So, Now to him, here's where the glory goes, it goes to him who is able to strengthen you, and here's how he does it, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, we are not not even halfway through the doxology. There's more to go. Uh, You'd think Paul could be done here, but he has more uh, to say. He said he strengthens you, he deserves glory, because he strengthens you according to my gospel, the gospel that I preach, according to the proclamation of uh, Jesus Christ. And then he adds this, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. And this is an, an explanation of how he strengthens you. He strengthens you according to the gospel. That's what I've been saying. He strengthens you according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. So he strengthens according to the gospel and he strengthens according to this mystery. What is he talking about? Because the rest of this doxology is going to dwell on that. The mystery as the way of him strengthening you. He strengthens you according to the mystery. Now, the word mystery can be a little bit confusing in uh, the New Testament because the New Testament translators, they don't translate the word. They just carry it over straight from Greek. The Greek word for mystery is mystery. So they just carry it straight over without uh, translating it. I'm I'm glad they do that because it's an important word. The confusing part is it doesn't mean the same thing in Greek that it means in uh, English. In English, mystery means something that isn't understood. And so if you say to somebody, well, that's a mystery to me, that means I don't know what it is. I don't understand uh, uh, what it is. I don't know it. It's something that's not understood. Uh, In Greek, mystery means a secret revealed. A secret revealed. And so actually, if you tell someone something is a mystery, it might kind of mean the opposite. It means you do know it's a secret that's been revealed uh, to you. And uh, when I think of this word uh, mystery, I think of, you'll have to forgive me on this, uh, the fairy tale of Rumpelstiltskin. Of, uh, it's the miller's daughter, and uh, her father boasts that she can spin straw into gold. And so the king hears about it and locks her in a room and tells her that she has to do this. And so this little man comes and uh, does it for her in exchange for her firstborn son. And so when the time comes for him to collect, he's ready to do it. And the only way out for her is if she can guess his name, which she knows that he ca- she cannot do. So uh, she finds out by hearing him, actually gloating about how nobody knows his name, and then he says uh, what it is. So when she knows that name, that name is a mystery to her, doesn't mean she doesn't know what it is. She knows exactly what it is. She knows it's clearly, but it's a mystery because uh, in the Greek sense of the word, the sense used here, 
It's a mystery because it's a secret revealed and it's knowledge that she couldn't figure out by looking at his shoes or looking at his face and then figuring out what his name is. She would have to be told and he told her accidentally, but that's the only way uh, that she could know uh, is by being told by just being told to her because there's no other way to figure it out. And so that's the kind of knowledge that it's called a mystery. And she could say that's a, it's a mystery to me because I found out in that way and it's the only way I could have uh, found out. And so he strength, God strengthens us according to, in agreement with the mystery that has been kept secret for long ages past but is now is manifested. Now stay with me uh, on this. Let me ask you this question. Is the whole Bible mystery? In other words, is the whole, is, is everything that the Bible conveys, all the knowledge that the Bible conveys, that kind of knowledge? Knowledge that you can't figure out in any other way unless you're told. And I think the answer to that is a part of the Bible is uh, mystery. Um, the essence of the Ten Commandments, you can figure out without the Bible. In fact, the Bible says it's stamped on every heart. And so uh, if you don't have the Bible, you can figure out something pretty close to, you know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, uh, and even even thou shalt worship the, the Lord, um, because that is uh, stamped on the heart. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven upon all men. And so men without the Bible, just by looking around at the world, you can say there's something terribly wrong. Death reigns. There's a wrath. There's something not right uh, between me and, and the God that I know uh, exists, and I, I, I can I can figure that out. I don't need somebody to tell me uh, to figure that out. And so that part, even though the Bible says that, that part is not mystery. It's not a kind of knowledge you can't learn unless you're told. But everything the Bible says about salvation, everything that it says about salvation is mystery. Is something you can't learn about unless you're told. You can't figure it out. You can't look at a tree or, or, or meditate within and figure out salvation uh, and figure out that, that God uh, saves. And so it's a mystery. And the Bible calls that knowledge mystery. The, what the Bible teaches about uh, salvation uses that word, uses that word quite a bit in uh, 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 the New Testament. And many commentators on this passage understand this reference to the word mystery in that sense. That uh, God deserves glory because he strengthens you according to the gospel and according to the revelation of the mystery, meaning everything the Bible teaches about salvation. And so it's kind of synonymous, you know, with the gospel and then uh, mystery uh, as well is uh, the things that the Bible teaches about uh, salvation. I think that's not right. I think that doesn't quite fit. I think it misses the richness of this doxology and the encouragement, some of the encouragement that comes out of it. And misses Paul's point as well, because there's another way in which the Bible uses the word mystery, same meaning, uh, secret revealed. But uh, the Bible uses it, and the New Testament uses it sometimes to speak not only of something that could never be figured out by looking around, but has to be uh, uh, learned through the Bible, but also of something that could never be figured out even by reading the Old Testament even by reading the Old Testament. And so sometimes the Bible uses mystery uh, in the sense of something that is not revealed in nature, but also not revealed in the Old Testament. It's only revealed in the New Testament. So uh, this would be something not just about um, 
salvation in the Bible that can't be learned from nature, but also something about salvation in the Bible that can't be learned from the Old Testament, but it can only be learned from the New Testament. And this is the way in which this is described. I think this is fitting from the way it's said. According to the revelation of uh, the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. That's not true of everything the Bible teaches about salvation. The Bible begins teaching about salvation in Genesis, Genesis 3.15. It's not hidden, it's revealed. Um, but this is about a mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, just now, just re- like at the time of the New Testament, is uh, manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, when you think here of the scriptures of the prophets, don't think of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Think of Paul and John and Peter. In other words, New Testament prophets. The, the gift of prophecy was uh, operating at this time and new scriptures were being produced. New te- like Romans was being uh, produced. And so this is a mystery now being manifest. It's, it's been hidden for a long time. It's been totally hidden for a long time, but now it's being manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of, uh, of faith. So it's, it's, uh, the words here speak of how God's purposes unfold in time. Uh, something kept secret for long past, but now being, uh, manifested. Uh, is that right? Does God reveal things in the New Testament that are not in the Old Testament? Yes, it is right. It is right. Uh, everything in the New Testament is in keeping with the Old Testament. There's nothing contradictory uh, about the New Testament and the Old Testament. In fact, it's a perfect uh, fit. But uh, prophecies that tell that a promise will be fulfilled in the Old Testament, it's not always revealed exactly how those prophecies are going to be fulfilled. And uh, sometimes the way the New Testament tells how those prophecies are fulfilled is a surprise. It's something you can't see coming just from reading the Old Testament or even adds kind of a new wrinkle to how that prophecy is going to be fulfilled. For example, uh, Jesus comes to earth twice to accomplish God's purposes on earth, not once. And if you read the Old Testament, I don't think you could figure that out. It would seem like Christ comes and uh, establishes uh, the kingdom of God on earth and that he comes only uh, once. But a mystery only learned in the New Testament is that he comes twice. And actually what happens between the first and second coming of Christ is a mystery in that sense too. It's not revealed in the Old Testament, but it's only revealed in uh, the New Testament. It's uh, spoken of that uh, a number of times in um in uh, in the New Testament, for example, Matthew chapter 13, well, you can read it. The Lord tells a bunch of parables about the mysteries of the kingdom, the things not revealed in the Old Testament. And the parables there uh, speak about how his kingdom comes in two parts, how he's going to be absent for a while, and then he's going to uh, come back and establish his kingdom. And it'll be everything that the Old Testament um, uh, said it would be, but not at first. There's going to be uh, a time that elapses in his abstinence, and, and it's going to be time of the church time of Jew and Gentile being uh, saved together from uh, uh, the nations. And uh, that's spoken of, Paul speaks of it in a number of places as uh, a mystery, meaning something not revealed in uh, the Old uh, Testament. So here's what the Old Testament reveals. And and let me try to tie it together (laughs) in in this way. Um, Here's what the Old Testament reveals and promises, is that the curse 
that comes from sin, uh, that's changed life on this earth, is going to be repealed in a visible way. In a visible way. The curse came in a visible way. It changed things on this earth. But the curse is going to be repealed in a visible way by the nation of Israel coming to faith first. That's what the Old Testament uh, speaks of. God's chosen nation, Israel, coming to faith faith first as a nation, turning to him as a nation with a national repentance. And then the nations, the other nations, through Israel's repentance as a result of Israel's uh, repentance, also repenting and turning to the Lord so that there would be a golden age on the earth, that the character of the earth would change, that the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, that the whole world would have the same atmosphere as family camp, you know, where you're, where everybody knows the Lord, you know, and uh, uh, that's the atmosphere. And in fact, uh, even greater change than that, because uh, the lion would lie down with the lamb and the earth would be changed and wars would cease. And so that's what the uh, Old Testament envisions. Israel being changed, being uh, repenting to the Lord and through them, the, the whole character of the nations and of life on earth uh, changing. And that's still going to happen. It hasn't happened yet. It's still going to happen exactly as written because God cannot lie. He said it in the Old Testament and that's uh, what's uh, going to happen. But what the Old Testament doesn't foresee is that what is going to jumpstart Israel to uh, repenting is that some from the nations between the first coming and the second coming of the Messiah, some of the Gentiles are going to trust in Israel's Messiah first before Israel does. And they're going to leave a testimony for the nation of uh, Israel. The Old Testament never pre- it predicted the fulfillment that we're still waiting for, but it never predicted that fulfillment would come about in that way. But uh, the New Testament does, and Paul does. And when he does, he calls it a mystery. In fact, he explains it in Romans chapter 11 in some depth that uh, uh, Jewish people are not being saved so much. Some are, but uh, not the nation has not uh, accepted Christ, but Gentiles are being saved, and it's to provoke the nation of Israel to jealousy. And Paul explains this, and when he explains it, he calls it a mystery. Romans 11, verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, this thing that you're not going to find from the Old Testament, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so the church exists before Israel's national repentance to provoke them to jealousy. And Paul is excited about this. He, he, he gets sort of enraptured uh, about this, probably more than we are. You know, we learn that, that uh, the church exists in part in this time to provoke Israel to jealousy. In the end, we say, okay, you know, I, I guess I accept that. But Paul's excited about it. He's more excited about it uh, than we are. And I think not just for what it says about us and our part that we play now, but for what it says about God and for what it says about how he strengthens you. God is able to strengthen you in agreement with this mystery that's being revealed. And the mystery is that when things seem to be going totally off the rails, like Israel's Messiah coming and Israel rejects them, God has a surprise way of fulfillment that no one would have ever thought of. Uh, And that when it seems like it's going totally off the rails, surprise, there's a mystery, which is, 
it's right on track. It's a perfect fit, and it's a plan. And that's how he strengthens you. That's how he strengthens us as a church. And so he's able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ and according to, in agreement with, just on the same pattern as the revelation of the mystery kept secret for long ages past. That's how he strengthens uh, you uh, as well. So God fulfills all of his promises to you. Yes. Uh, and, and he strengthens you according to the gospel of uh, Jesus Christ, but also according to the mystery that's just been revealed as well. In other words, he strengthens you according to his promise, but he likes to surprise you as to how he does it. And he likes to surprise you every step of the way. So aren't you glad you have a God like that who deserves glory uh, because of that? Uh, it's an exciting thing. It's a joyful thing. It's a hopeful thing to have a God whose character is like that, who deserves glory because he's like uh, that, who strengthens you according to the gospel of Christ and according to the mystery that's just been uh, revealed. It can cause you to say, well, what surprise? What strange thing? What what surprise way of uh, fulfilling uh, his promise to me does God have in store for me uh, today? So uh, uh, he strengthens according to the revelation of the mystery, which is um, now manifested. It's been, it's been hidden for ages. And now just recently, Paul says it's been made known to the nations, leading them to the obedience of faith. And that's the way in which the nations are going to be a testimony to uh, Israel is by obeying the Lord out of faith, by simply trusting in him, trusting in him, him as a savior. And, and uh, their obedience to him is going to be through believing that he is the way that he says he is. In other words, being glad that God exists, glad that he's a savior and offering up our obedience to him as a sacrifice based on the tender mercies of God. And uh, the nations, some from the nations do it first. That's the church. And it's going to teach Israel also about the obedience to faith. And so this is why God deserves glory is because he causes you to stand according to his gospel and according to this pattern, even of, of God's way of operating, according to surprise ways of fulfillment, the mystery that has just been uh, revealed. And so Paul uh, sums it up again to ascribe glory to God. Verse 27 says, to the only wise God, to the only wise God. Interesting, he says uh, God's wisdom here. He could have said here, uh, as he sums it up at the end of uh, Romans, to the only powerful God or to the only majestic God. Through Jesus Christ belongs glory forever. He could have even said to the only loving God. Wouldn't that be a good fit uh, for the gospel that he that he teaches? Uh, or to the only uh, gracious God. That would be a wonderful fit too. But he says here, and it's a perfect fit, to the God who is alone wise. Only God can lead his promises, his good promises to fulfillment in the way that he does. In the surprising way. Uh, that he does because only God is wise. When Paul spoke and explained the mystery of what God is doing among the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy and got very excited about it, was sort of enraptured by it. Uh, what he was enraptured by was the wisdom of God to make a plan like this and carry it out. That's in Romans 11 again. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. 
to whom be the glory forever. And so it's the wisdom of God that Paul is uh, impressed with as the gospel itself causes God's character to shine forth and especially his uh, uh, wisdom. So uh, the shining forth of God's character in the gospel, as Paul um, uh, puts it here, the way he strengthens you, the way he strengthens uh, the church causes especially his wisdom to shine. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? God makes the rough places uh, plain. Christ himself uh, uh, healed a woman bent over for 18 years and caused her to stand up straight uh, again. And so uh, it takes great power to create something new. It takes wisdom and a different uh, attribute uh, of God to take something that's ruined and make it perfect again, like this world that uh, has been totally ruined by sin. And it's the glory of God to, to straighten it out. And he does it through uh, a, a pathway that seems like it's uh, it's going here and, and there, and it seems like it's never going to result in the fulfillment uh, because uh, it involves the worst thing happening. It involves his people uh, rejecting uh, the Messiah, uh, the people of Israel rejecting the Messiah, and the fulfillment's right on track because there's there's something that no one has thought of, it, which is for the Gentiles to accept the Messiah in advance of uh, uh, the Jewish uh, people. And uh, so it, it leads us to the wisdom of God who can straighten what has been uh, broken. So whatever sin you've committed... Whatever victory Satan has won uh, against you, Christ is able to fill you with strength and to cause you to stand before him. Perfect in the end. And it's going to be surprising the way in which uh, he does that. Uh, because the worst thing that happens is uh, part of God's plan to cause that to be true. That's true of you. It's true of us as a church as well. The worst catastrophe is really a part of God's uh, plan and uh, used in his plan to bring his um, good promises to fulfillment in a way that only the wise God could have imagined and brings great glory to him in the end through Jesus Christ. So God's plan of goodness towards us through the gospel uh, brings good to us in a way that will be remembered, a way that will marvel at and glorify uh, him for all eternity. And so we're to begin glorifying him in our hearts for that now to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. That's our response. That's the response that should be in your heart. Yes, let it be. I'm, I'm echoing that uh, as well, even what I'll be echoing for all eternity. Well, let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, we do give our amen to this. We thank you that you are uh, glorifying yourself by strengthening believers, that you strengthen us through the gospel, through the good news of Christ, through the message that our sins are forgiven, through the message that the victory has been won and that you've caused us to be overcomers and that you will uh, be with us to uh, cause us to be overcomers until the end, uh, to stand uh, before you. We thank you that you strengthen us even according to the pattern of a mystery and surprise uh, fulfillment. So the thing that seems to be what thwarts your purposes is actually the thing that brings it about. And so we pray that uh, this uh, 
special glory of your wisdom might be seen in each of our lives and also in the life of our church. And we pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.